If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Acts chapter 23. Uh, today we enter, we kind of round third in our study of the book of Acts. We're entering into the final quarter, the last seven chapters, which traditionally have been called the sufferings of Paul, because it's seven chapters, essentially, of Paul suffering in different ways. And God asked more of Paul, you know, on these pages than he's ever asked before. He He's calling Paul to a deeper level of faithfulness and a more costly level of obedience. And I'll just tell you right from the get-go, these are hard chapters in many ways. People don't tend to preach on them because they're a bit repetitive and the repetition is discouraging at times. That Paul goes and then he suffers and then he goes someplace else and then he suffers and then he goes someplace else and he suffers. But there's also a lot of beauty on these pages and in these stories. And the beauty that I see in the text we're looking at today is that Paul, in the midst of all of this suffering and all of this opposition, he, for the most part, shows just poise and really shows a tremendous amount of courage. And for many of us, when we think of courage, we think of the dramatic. You know, if you're raised, if you're a guy and you're raised in my generation, you think of courage, you think of Braveheart, right? You think of, of Hollywood and Mel Gibson screaming out, freedom. Uh, with our other movies that, you know, just came out recently, movies like Hacksaw Ridge or Hidden Figures that, that show us pictures and glimpses of courage. But what happens to so many of us is courage, it, it's kind of a cool thing, but it's a kind of out there thing. Like it's for the spectacular, it's for the dramatic, it's for the big screen, it's for Hollywood. We actually don't think all that much about courage in our day-to-day -day life. And Brene Brown and her... Uh, amazing book, Daring Greatly. She actually, she's really helped me expand my understanding and definition of courage. She says in her book, courage, you know, while sometimes it is doing something huge, we also experience courage in the day to day. She says that courage is asking for help, it's asking for forgiveness, it's saying no. Courage is exercising in public, especially when I don't know what I'm doing and I'm out of shape. Anyone ever been there? Courage is signing my mom up for hospice care. It's getting pregnant after three miscarriages. It's reaching out to my son who's going through a difficult divorce. It's calling a friend whose child just died. It's helping my 37-year-old wife with stage four breast cancer make decisions about her will. You know, I think of today, courage is showing up on Child Dedication Sunday when you want to have children and you can't have children or you don't have children. Courage is something that comes into play every day of our lives. It's something that we all need and it's something that we all need to grow in. And so we're going to look at Acts 21 through 23, three chapters, and really focus in on the courage of Paul. And I'm going to read for you just one verse at near the very, very end of the text we're looking at. It's Acts 23, verse 11. We're going to kind of begin with the end of mine. And so if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word as we look at Acts 23, verse 11. Luke tells us that the following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. 
This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's one verse that really unlocks the previous three chapters. And so the outline that we're going to follow this morning is real simple. We're going to talk about the why of courage, why we need it. And then we're going to talk the how of courage, how we actually get it, use it, leverage it in our lives. Beginning though with the why of courage, why do we need it? Why does Jesus come to Paul and say, take courage? And the answer, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why and then I'll show you. The answer, the reason why we need courage is because life is really hard. And it's because a life of obedience is really difficult and often it's painful. Obedience is really difficult and often it's painful. You know, if you go back to chapter 21, while Paul is, he's on his way from Asia to Jerusalem, he makes a few stops along the way and Luke tells us about these stops. The first stop they make, is in a city called Tyre. And Luke tells us that we landed at Tyre where our ship's ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Through the Spirit, through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. But when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. And then down in Verse 10, Luke tells us about another stop they made in the city of Caesarea. Luke says, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So they make two stops, and in both places, Paul's friends, they urge, they beg, they plead with him, do not go to Jerusalem. And if you pay attention, you'll see that in both cases, the reason they're begging him and pleading with him not to go to Jerusalem is because of the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, they said, don't go. Through the Holy Spirit, Agabus gave this, you know, fascinating, dramatic prophecy of what would happen if he does go. Now, this is confusing because the whole reason Paul is going to Jerusalem is because of the Spirit. In chapter 20, Paul says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. And I'll tell you, these verses they give commentators and Bible scholars fits because it seems like the Holy Spirit's divided. I don't think the Holy Spirit's divided. We know the Holy Spirit's not divided. He's not going to send mixed messages or contradict himself. But there is a lot of confusion. And I think what's happening here is that the Spirit has revealed to Paul's friends what's going to happen to him if he goes to Jerusalem. I think what's happened here is Paul's friends in Tyre and Caesarea, they're given visions of Paul being attacked by a mob of having rocks thrown on them, of being flogged, of being imprisoned, of suffering greatly. And so they say to Paul, through the Spirit's visions, do not go. Paul, don't go. They're going to kill you if you go to Jerusalem. But Paul responds, in Caesarea, he responds by saying, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem 
for the name of the Lord Jesus. What Paul's saying here is he's saying, listen, this is the Lord's will for me, and I'm ready to go. And if I'm going to suffer, I'm going to suffer. And so he presses on to Jerusalem. And what I want to do with you for just a couple of minutes, I actually want to walk through what happens to him while he's in Jerusalem, because I want you to see what God led him into. I want you to see Paul as he is obeying Jesus. Jesus said, here's where you need to go. Paul said, okay, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I want to see what he follows Jesus into and what happens to him. Luke tells us that when they get to Jerusalem, all is calm, all is cool for about seven days. But on the seventh day, Luke tells us, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. The whole city was stirred up and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. I mean, this is intense. And you actually get a sense of the climate that was in Jerusalem at the time because someone finally recognizes Paul and it's kind of like, all right, you know, enact Operation Paul. He's here. The gates start shutting. Crowds start running. They bring him in. Nate, in the middle of the street, they try to kill him. They try to execute him, you know, as a mob. And by God's grace, the Roman commander who was in charge of the city sees what's going on. And he, what he does is he actually takes Paul. He orders that Paul be taken into protective custody until he can sort out what's going on. And so as he is having Paul, they had to carry him because the crowd was so violent, they wouldn't even let Paul walk. The soldiers had to carry him. As he's being carried to the Roman barracks, Paul actually speaks to the commander and he says, hey, can I have a word with the crowd? And the commander says, okay. And so Paul the whole reason, you know, he's going to Jerusalem is so he can testify about Jesus. And so what does Paul do? He gets up in front of the crowd, the crowd that just tried to, cut, to kill him, and he proceeds to share with them his story. He proceeds to, to share what God has done in his life. And he begins, you know, he says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Sicilia, but brought up in this city under Gamaliel. I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. He's basically at the beginning saying, listen, I was once just like you. I was just as zealous for the law. I was just as fired up about putting this thing called the way, this thing called Christianity in the grave. But then something happened. I was on this road to Damascus and Jesus showed up and he blinded me. And he said, why are you persecuting me? And I met him and I came to faith in him. He saved me, he rescued me. And then he called me to go preach his gospel. 
and to preach it, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles as well. And when he does this, uh, when Paul shares with them that the gospel is not just for the Jews, because they're listening along up to this point, but when Paul says, listen, the gospel of grace, it's actually for all people everywhere, the crowd snaps. Luke tells us, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He is not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen Zero Dark Thirty or American Sniper or any of those films, but you kind of get this picture of what this mob was like. They're throwing off their cloaks. They're flinging dust in the air. They're rabid. They're angry. And the commander, he knows he's got to do something, so he orders for Paul to be flogged. And the whip that would be used on flog, that would have been used on Paul would be similar to the whip that was used on Jesus. It was a wooden handle, and attached to the wooden handle were many leather strips. And each leather strip had jagged pieces of bone, of metal, of rock embedded in it so that when you were whipped with it, it would actually tear off pieces of skin. When people were flogged in this way, many of them died, and those who survived would be disabled for life. And here's what I want you to see. All of this is happening because Paul said to Jesus, I'll follow you. All of this is happening because compelled by the Spirit, Paul said, all right, I'm going to go with you. You tell me to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And it's important to see that Paul, he's not a masochist. He doesn't love pain. He's not like, bring it on, I could care less. Because, actually in the very next verse, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion there, is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? And I'll give you a hint. The answer is no. That's highly illegal. You can't really touch a true Roman citizen until they've been tried. And so what we see in Paul is, while he's willing to endure pain, he doesn't love it. You know, when the flogging comes up, he's like, I'm going to go ahead and claim citizenship on this one. Like, if I can get out of this, if I can avoid this, you know, we'll, we'll play the card and see what happens. And so the commander doesn't flog him. Instead, he puts him back into protective custody for the night. The next day, Paul's brought before the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin's kind of like the Supreme Court, the Congress, and the religious leadership uh, of the Jewish people in that day. I mean, it is the... the the guys who run and control everything. It's the establishment. And so they bring Paul before the establishment because they want to interrogate him further. And in chapter 23, verses 1 and 2, Luke tells us that Paul, when he's brought before them, he looks straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. So my conscience is clean. I did what I was supposed to do. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Now, this isn't a slap. This is a blow. This is a punch. And Paul, he kind of loses it here. 
He loses his cool and he loses his composure because he responds by saying to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. In that moment, you can see Paul's losing his composure because while he was speaking truthfully, he wasn't walking in obedience. How do we know he wasn't walking in obedience? Because his Lord and our Lord actually said what you should do when someone slaps you in the face, when someone strikes you on the cheek. Jesus is really clear. Someone strikes you on one cheek, offer them the other. Don't sling some old school shade their way, you whitewashed wall. But he kind of just lost it. And it's, it's understandable. But the thing about Paul is he knows he lost it. He knows he failed because in verse four, those who were standing near Paul said to him, you dare to insult God's high priest? And Paul replied, brothers, I didn't realize it was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Paul owns it. And I think for us, the the failure here, it's like, well, it's totally understandable if I was in that place. But you have to understand, I mean, this is a very clear teaching of Jesus. These are men are very deeply religious. Everything you're doing is going to be criticized and evaluated and inspected and reflected upon. And Paul here. Imagine if you would have turned the other cheek. Imagine if you would have walked in the footsteps of our Lord, who when he was beaten, didn't say a word and didn't offer a word of defense. But Paul doesn't. Kind of fails, and that's okay. There's grace. But it had to to be a bit defeating. And yet right after that, Paul does something incredibly shrewd. Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. Now, when he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the assembly was divided because the Sadducees say there is no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And so what you got to see, this I know there's a lot of words and a lot of C's, Pharisees and Sadducees and, and all of that, but there are two groups of people. One who's saying, when we die, that's it. There's another group that says, no, when we die, we will rise from the grave. And Paul's saying, I'm a part of that crew. And then the two bodies, the, fat, the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they, they start to fight and they start to argue. And what Paul did here is essentially he threw like a theological smoke bomb, you know, to disappear like a ninja because they're arguing with one another and he's going to try to sneak out. Uh, and typically when you think of theological arguments, you might think, well, they could probably get heated every once in a while. This one turns vicious though. Paul isn't able to, to escape. And Luke tells us that the dispute between these two groups became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. So he ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. And it was there, it was that night when Jesus showed up to Paul. Jesus stood beside Paul and said, hey, take courage. And I think Paul was pretty low. His countrymen want him dead. He's failed in a pretty big way as his witness. 
He's been abandoned by an awful lot of his friends. He's discouraged. He's despairing. He's low. I know this is where he's at because Jesus, four times in the Gospels, does Jesus come to someone and say, take courage? First time, Matthew 9, when he heals a paralytic, a guy who was hopeless, utterly hopeless, Jesus heals him. Then also in Matthew 9, Jesus says, take courage to a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and spent every dime she had on doctors but had never found a cure. He heals her and says, take courage. Third time, when the disciples, they, they left Jesus on the shore and they went out on the sea together. And so Jesus starts walking out to them and they see him and rightfully, they see him walking on the water and rightfully so they freak out and wonder what kind of monster walks on water is going to kill them. They were terrified. And Jesus says to them, take courage. And then in John 16, verse 33, the night before his crucifixion, the night before Jesus is going to leave, he tells his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, take courage. It's the same word. I have overcome the world. What all four of these instances have in common is that Jesus was speaking to people on the verge of despair. Paul, he's obeyed Jesus, but he's low. And so Jesus shows up to encourage him. He says, hey, take heart. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. There's an encouragement here. He's saying, you've, you've done it. You testified about me here. Paul's looking at it like a failure. Like if you get up and share your testimony before a religious crowd and they say away with him, he's not fit to live. Most of us would say, well, we failed. But Jesus said, no, you, you did what you're supposed to do here. And I'm not done with you. Because you're going to go on to Rome and testify about me there. Jesus is essentially saying, good job, keep going. And here's what I want to hold before you. Here's what I want to be crystal clear in your mind. Everything that Paul just went through was because of God's plan, it was a part of God's plan, and it was a part of God's will. Everything, the suffering, the hatred, the isolation, the, the despair he experienced, the physical pain, the emotional pain, all of it was a part of God's plan and a part of God's will. And this is just hard for us. Because the default nature of the human heart is to think God just wants me to be happy all the time. Anyone else just default back to that? I learn again and again. You know, I have these seasons of suffering and then God brings great beauty out of the suffering. And I'm like, yeah, God, he's not concerned just about me just being happy. He wants to change me. And then what happens as soon as I get out of the season of suffering? I have a week or two where it's 70 and sunny outside. Everything's great. And then suffering comes into my life. And I'm thinking, seriously, God, you're going to do this? Because I default. We all default to thinking that God ultimately just wants us to be happy. And what this text says is, no, God wants us to follow him and to obey him. And sometimes it's going to be awesome and there's going to be highs and there's going to be joy. And sometimes you're going to find yourself alone and in despair 
so often I think that I'm like this. Most of us are like, you know, the, the disciples in the churches telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. We see pain, we see hardships, and we say, don't go there. Do you know what will happen if you go there? I think a lot of us, we don't even have a category for God calling us into something that is intentionally or not intentionally, but inevitably going to be painful and hard and bring about suffering. When God calls us to, to step into something hard, we hesitate, we balk, right? We don't have the conversation. We don't get involved. We don't speak up. We don't use our money, our time, our energy. We don't step in. Because we're afraid, if I step in, what's going to happen? What are the repercussions that are going to happen to me? What are the ramifications? And what I want you to see is that our fear keeps us from obeying God. Our lack of courage keeps us from stepping into God's will for our lives and God's plan for our lives. And for many of us, we just have to totally redefine courage because we think, we think of courage as, or courage and obedience, we think of it as checking the boxes of what God calls us to in his word, of following the rules that he lays out for us here. And that's certainly part of it. A big part of obedience is following God's laws. But ultimately, we don't worship a law or a constitution or a book. We worship a living God who is real, who is there, and who gives us his spirit. And so obedience is a lot more than just saying, well, I followed the rules. Obedience is saying, I will pour myself out where you tell me to pour myself out. I will follow you where you lead me. Because it's a relationship. And it's a fellowship. And to do that well, all relationships can become painful. To say Christianity, I mean, when, when you no longer reduce Christianity down to, I'm going to follow the rules that I like in here. And instead you say, I am going to commit my life to the living God wherever he leads me. The minute you do that, be prepared for pain. Be prepared for hardships. And be prepared for suffering. I want to challenge you, if your obedience to Jesus never causes you pain, it might be something to press into. If obeying Jesus has never cost you much, it might be something to look into. That's why we need courage, y'all. So when he calls, we can say yes. So when he says, go there, we can say, okay, I'll go, even though it looks awful. So that's the why, but the how. How do we get this kind of courage? One, you got to recognize that Jesus is with you. And two, you have to remember that he's already gone before you. What do I mean by that? How did Paul get this kind of courage? To keep going and keep going. What did he knew? What did he know? Well, Paul knew that even though Jesus was calling him to suffer, he wasn't calling him to suffer alone. Because God never calls us to suffer alone. Because wherever we go, he goes with us. And when he, we suffer, he suffers with us. You know, a couple chapters earlier in Acts 18, 
uh, Luke tells us that one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so this was obviously a challenging circumstance or else God wouldn't say, don't be afraid. You don't say that unless someone's afraid. So Paul's afraid. And what does the Lord Jesus do? He says, I'm with you. And not only am I with you, I got connections in this city. No one's going to lay a hand on you. The promise that Jesus makes to Paul there, he made to his disciples and in turn to all of us. Great commission when he said, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. What I want you to see is that our God, he's not some general stationed in headquarters, moving us around on some board, not really knowing or caring about the suffering and pain we endure. No, he is a faithful counselor, a faithful brother, a faithful friend, who wherever we go, he walks with us. Whatever we have to endure, he endures with us. And I think, and this is a bit speculative, but I think the reason Jesus shows up to Paul in such a powerful way here in chapter 23, and manifests his presence, is because Paul was beginning to forget that the Lord was with him and he still had a lot of mountain to climb. He still had to go to Rome and he was getting discouraged. And so Jesus steps up and says, Paul, take courage, I'm with you. I've been with you and I will stay with you. Paul needed to be reminded, like we all need to be reminded, that the Lord never leaves nor forsakes us. He is with us always. Because he is with us always, man, we can have the courage to go through anything or step into anything because there's no safer place to be than to be with Jesus regardless of what's happening to you. There's no safer place to be than to be with Jesus regardless of what's happening to you. And so in Mark 4, it's a, a story that I've taught on a number of times, but it's come back and it's, God's really been working my soul, like working on my soul with it. It's, it's the story of when Jesus and his friends, they go out sailing on the Sea of Galilee. And Mark tells us that while they're on the sea, a furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Have any of you ever been on a boat that's been swamped or nearly swamped? I have twice. So don't go boating with me, right? Two times. Both times I had life jackets and both times it was absolutely terrifying. These guys are on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of a storm. The boat is swamped, it's sinking. And yet Luke tells us that, or Mark tells us that Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? You ever ask God that question? You ever ask Jesus, don't you care if we drown? I'm being slapped around by the waves. I'm struggling to keep my head above water. Don't you, do you give one rip, Jesus, about what's happening to me? In this story, it's our story. And what I love 
gosh, I love, and I'm still challenged by Jesus's response because Jesus got up, he rebuked the wind and said to the waves, which I love that he rebuked the wind, hey, stop it now. Waves, be quiet. And the wind died down and it was completely calm. And then Jesus said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? That's the first question, which seems like a ridiculous question. Why are we so afraid? Oh, I don't know, Jesus, because we almost drowned in the middle of the sea and life jackets haven't been invented yet. <laughs> Why are we so afraid? Jesus doesn't ask that question because he's oblivious to the storm. Jesus asked that question because he's the Lord of the storm, because the wind and the waves obey him. And he's saying, you got me in the boat with you. Why are you afraid? Do you still not have any faith in who I am and what I can do for you? What the scriptures teach us over and over and over again is that when God is with you, it doesn't matter where you are or what's happening to you, you're safe. And so you can be in Pharaoh's prison, you can be in a lion's den or a fiery furnace, you can be on the floor of the Red Sea, you can be in a little boat that's being battered in the middle of a raging sea. You can be walking through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because the Lord is with you. His rod and his staff, they comfort you. Or you can be in the middle of a rabid, angry crowd that wants you dead, but if Jesus is with you, you're safe. When I say you're safe, that doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I mean when you say you're safe is the worst of things can't really hurt you. When you are in Jesus and you are with Jesus, the worst things that can be thrown at you can't really hurt you. Why? Because Jesus is with you, but also because he's gone before you. And because Jesus walked the road of suffering as he walked the hill of Calvary, we know he took the worst thing in the world that could ever be thrown at us. The worst thing in the world that could ever be thrown at us would be the judgment of God. It would be God saying, I'm wash, I've washed my hands of you and I'm done with you. And Jesus, he went up the hill to take that suffering. He was forsaken so that we could be forgiven and welcomed back into the family of God, welcomed back into the love of God, he went and experienced the extreme disapproval of God so that we could receive, you know, the unfettered, unqualified approval of God in Christ. So that we could experience the love of Christ. And what this means is that nothing can separate us from that love. The, the absolute worst things this world can throw at us are powerless before this love. You know, it's just a few months, I think, before all of these things transpired. Paul wrote a letter that would go on to be a bestseller. Uh, it was his letter to the Romans. Now, I want you to think about this. It was, this was a couple of months before all this transpired. But in the book of Romans, Paul writes these words. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No. 
In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's because Paul knew this. It's because Paul knew that I have the love of God And if I live, I get to serve him. And if I die, I get to be with him. It's win-win. And so when God says go, he goes. When God says stay, he stays. When he says speak up, Paul speaks up. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, what I want to hold before you and what I want to ask you is what might the Lord be calling you to do that you've been resistant to? That takes a little courage. That might mean some pain. What hard conversations? You know, what reflections? Maybe he's calling you to be generous and to give money someplace that you've been resistant. Maybe he's calling you to move for the sake of the gospel. Maybe he's calling you to stay. I don't know. But what is God calling you to And then by the the power of the Spirit, I want you to step into it, knowing that God goes with you and that he's gone before you. As we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded that Jesus went before us, that his body and blood were offered for us so that we could be forgiven and so that we could enter into the family of God. And so as we come, we eat and we drink, we can confess our sin, we can confess cowardice, we can confess disobedience, we can confess apathy. Some of you are like, I don't really care about any of this. I think I'm a Christian, I don't know, but my heart is cold. What I love about the table is because Jesus took all of our judgment, we can come with a radical honesty. Here's what's really going on, Lord. And so I wanna encourage you to come, but I also wanna encourage you to be attentive to what he's calling you to. So if you're here and you're a Christian, we encourage you to come to eat, to be comforted. I would say a lot of times people are in a rush. You don't need to be in a rush. If there's work that you need to do, if there's a conversation you need to have with the Lord or with someone else in this room, you can go do it before you come to the table. Let me pray.